This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, our weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. The world, understandably, has been so focused on the war in Ukraine that an absolutely frightening climate report released on Monday received too little attention. The report was issued by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, whose reports are considered the most authoritative and comprehensive assessments of climate change and global warming. In the words of UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, the new report is, quote, an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. This abdication of leadership is criminal, unquote. Ironically, something else that didn't get much attention is a case that was being argued before the U.S. Supreme Court even as the U.N. report was being released. Known as West Virginia v. the Environmental Protection Agency, it might well underscore what the Secretary General means by an abdication of leadership. The case may also turn out to be one of the most significant when it comes to how this country will continue to battle climate change. It incorporates several similar cases, including one brought against the EPA by the state of North Dakota, as well as suits brought by several coal mining companies. During about two hours of oral arguments, Republican attorneys general and attorneys for the coal companies asked the court to strip the EPA of its authority to regulate the kinds of gas emissions from power plants that are a major cause of global warming. It's not clear, though, whether a majority of justices, including some of the conservative ones, were buying the petitioner's arguments. We likely won't find out until the court hands down its ruling, most likely in June. Before it does, the justices would do well to read the UN report. Even though they must rule based on their understanding of the Constitution, they at least should know what the stakes are, and those stakes are very high, according to its latest report. Because neither the report nor the Supreme Court case have gotten the attention they deserve, I'm focusing on it in this podcast. And so the topic for this week is yet another look at climate change and Jewish law. The UN report focuses on how climate change is affecting our world. It's the work of 270 top scientists from 67 countries and an additional 517 contributing authors. And it was approved by 195 countries before its release. To understand how frightening this report is, we need to understand something about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. As authoritative and comprehensive as its reports are, they also tend to be worded as conservatively as possible, because they have to be agreed upon by so many countries, not just by their scientists. And that's why, quote, the reality this report presents is alarming, unquote, in the words of Sergei Paltsov. In other words, its conservative conclusions are scary enough. Paltsov was the lead author of one of the panel's earlier reports, and he's deputy director of MIT's joint program on the science and policy of global change. Here's the bottom line. Climate change is even worse than scientists had expected it to be just a few years ago. We all saw its effects ourselves this past summer, with its catastrophic wildfires, deadly heat waves, and unprecedented flooding. Extreme heat waves, in fact, are happening 
five times as often today as they did in the pre-industrial 19th century, which is the baseline used to determine global warming. The heat wave that hit the Pacific Northwest this summer may have contributed to about a thousand deaths, if not more. The UN report makes clear that there's not much time left for decisive action before the negative effects of climate change become exponentially much greater. Scientists had predicted that the world would heat up by 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial times, or 35 degrees Fahrenheit, by the year 2050. Now they say that's likelier to happen 10 years earlier, in 2040, because we're heating up faster than just a few years ago. We're at about 1.1 degrees Celsius now. Once we reach that 1.5 degrees Celsius mark and go beyond it, we surely will if things don't immediately change. Global warming will go from exceedingly bad to dangerously much worse. Here are some results we're likely to see once we do hit 1.5 degrees Celsius. We'll probably lose somewhere around 8% of the world's farmland. We'll probably lose between 70 to 90% of the coral reefs that today serve as a buffer against coastal flooding, meaning that we'll see that flooding increase by more than one-fifth, putting many millions of people around the world at even greater risk than they already are from coastal flooding. We'll also see chronic water shortages affecting as many as 3 billion people worldwide, including more than one-third of the population in southern Europe. Those chronic water shortages will also lead to severe cuts in crop yields and even fish harvests, which will endanger the world's food supply. The report also notes that as many as 1.4 million children in Africa could face severe malnutrition as a result. If we get to 3 degrees Celsius of warming, we'll see even heavier rainstorms, even more flooding, and an ever-rising sea level that could cause four times as much economic damage worldwide as it does today. What we likely won't see are the as many as 29% of known species of plants and land animals that will have just disappeared. As of now, the report says, we're on track to reach as high as 3 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. But the world needs now, and by now, the report means right now. There is no time left to lose. What the world needs right now is to make what the report calls transformative changes to every aspect of how we live in this world, including rethinking how our homes are built, how our food is grown, and how our energy is produced. We'll also need to find much better ways to protect all creatures, great and small, and their environments. The incremental band-aid approaches we've been using won't cut it anymore. Secretary General Guterres warned that, quote, delay means death, unquote. And he meant exactly that. Things are already bad enough. Climate change is already threatening us because it's caused half of the world's species to relocate to new habitats and has helped drive some species to extinction. How bad are things getting? In the nearly 50 years since the Endangered Species Act became law, only 11 species here in the United States were declared extinct. Just last week, though, the federal government proposed to add 23 species to the endangered list. It may even be worse, though. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service lists 727 animals in this country that are either threatened or endangered, with another 27 species possibly to be added. 
It also lists 939 plants as either threatened or endangered. Around the world, more than 38,500 species have been identified as being at risk of extinction, nearly four times the number in 2000, according to the Boston Globe. We're also losing the battle to cope with greenhouse gas emissions. The UN report notes, for example, that the Amazon rainforest may be producing more carbon these days than it's sucking up, which is the opposite of what it's supposed to be doing. Then there's permafrost, which is sometimes referred to as the world's carbon sink. Scientists estimate that permafrost stores more carbon than we humans have ever released via fossil fuel combustion. The ground to be permafrost means that it must continuously register below 32 degrees Fahrenheit for two or more years. Right now, that so-called carbon sink covers about 15% of the northern hemisphere and overall around 11% of the world's surface. It follows, though, that as the world warms up, there'll be much less permafrost to soak up the carbon that we release. Most of us may not be around in 20 or 40 years from now, and certainly not by the end of the century, but our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, God willing, will be. So what this report has to say is just as important to us, even if we won't be here to see whether the scientists are correct. That brings us to Jewish law. I've discussed these issues in previous podcasts, but there's always more to learn from our sacred text. I'll begin this discussion by focusing on the biodiversity issue, and specifically the extinction of so many species being caused by climate change and global warming. This is where the mother bird comes in, and specifically the law in chapter 22 of Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, that says, quote, If along the road you come upon a bird's nest, in any tree or on the ground, with fledglings or eggs in it, and the mother sitting over the fledglings or on the eggs, do not take the mother together with her young. Let the mother go and take only the young, unquote. That's what the words said. Now, here is what they actually mean. As Nachmanides, the Ramban, interprets this quote, Scripture does not permit us to destroy an entire species. And the one who kills the mother and her young on the same day, or takes them when they are free to fly, this is as though he has cut off that species, unquote. Other commentators reach much the same conclusion, albeit from a different direction. The medieval Spanish commentator Don Isaac Babanel, for example, says that we're being commanded not to kill off whatever is capable of producing new life, because in this way, quote, creation is perpetuated, unquote. Obviously, the fledglings are also capable of producing new life, yet they may be taken and used for food. Underlying Babinell's point is that if both the mother and its children are killed, that's not perpetuating creation because it's akin to eliminating an entire species. No matter how we approach the mother bird commandment, we still must come to the same conclusion. It's our task, and by our I mean all humanity. It's our task to perpetuate the world's species, and that means, among other things, eliminating threats posed to them by climate change. As the first two chapters of Genesis, Sefer Breshit, make clear, and as the laws of the Torah codify, the reason humans were the last to be created 
is so that we would protect everything that was created before we got here. We're the stewards of creation, not its masters. And lest we think otherwise, the Talmud offers this observation. Creating us last was God's way of reminding us that, quote, even the gnat was created before you were, unquote. In other words, the human being was an afterthought because God needed us to protect all that God had created and told them. As for those gnats and all the other creatures, great and small, the pre-Talmudic sage Ben Sira has a wonderful discussion about them in the form of a series of challenging questions posed to him. One question had to do with why those gnats were created. Among the other reasons Ben Sira said it was, quote, to give life to raven chicks when they hatch from the eggs, unquote. The gnats are the food the chicks eat in order to survive. Then Ben Sira was asked why God created those troublesome and even harmful wasps and spiders. They too serve a purpose, he answered, and to say otherwise was slandering the creatures, and besides, quote, it would be inappropriate for a human to slander God's doings, unquote. Ben Sira's point, which other sages have also made, is that everything God created has a purpose. Because we don't always know what that purpose is, we're playing with fire by letting species go extinct. Extinction of species, though, is only part of the equation. Because of climate change, approximately half of the world's species have been forced to relocate their habitats. In other words, climate change is wreaking havoc on their lives. Beginning with Torah, we have a whole category of halakha of Jewish law known as Tsar Ba'alei Chaim, causing harm to living creatures. Not only must we cause them no harm, we have to do all we can to protect them from being harmed. I discussed Tsar Ba'alei Chaim in previous podcasts as well. For example, there's a Torah law, a mitzvah, that says that when an animal has fallen, presumably under a heavy load, we have to help its owner, whether friend or foe, to get the animal back up on its feet. It doesn't matter who the owner is, it's the animal's welfare that counts. In fact, our sages of blessed memory ruled that we must act to save animals from suffering, even on Shabbat. The sages even went so far as to prohibit a person from owning an animal, or a bird for that matter, unless he or she could properly care for it. And they require that animals be given their dinner before we humans get ours. They also ban the injuring or killing of animals, and by extension birds, for no valid reason. Let's move on. The environment can't protect itself. As I've noted in the past, the Torah says as much in two verses found in Devarim in Deuteronomy. And it does so in the midst of a commandment relating to the rules of war. Here again is that mitzvah and the rhetorical question that's posed within it. Quote, In your war against the city, do not destroy its fruit-bearing trees, wielding the axe against them for good, for from them you will eat. Do not cut them down, for is the tree of the field a person that he can escape from you into the besieged town? Only that tree that you know is not one with this food? That one you may destroy and cut down in order to destruct your war machines, unquote. Now, let's look at how two medieval commentators, Rashi and Abraham Ibn Ezra, parse this commandment. Ibn Ezra interprets it narrowly. He sees it as pertaining only to food-bearing trees. They must be protected because they provide food people need to survive. 
all about our need, nothing to do with protecting the trees. Rashi, on the other hand, says it's all about the trees. They're also living things, but they can't defend themselves from being attacked, which is why we may not harm trees without a valid reason for doing so. I'm with Rashi on this one, and I think if Ibn Ezra knew then what we know now, he probably would be too. So, let's look at these two verses more closely. First, there's that rhetorical question I mentioned, the one Rashi hangs his opinion on, the one that forms the basis for this mistake. That question is, is the tree of the field a person that can defend itself from being attacked? Obviously, the tree can't, but which trees are the ones that must be protected? First verse makes clear that the Torah is talking about trees that produce food for every creature, feeding or otherwise, which is how Ibn Ezra sees it. Even if you need a battering ram to break down the gates of a town or ladders to scale its walls, that's not a sufficient, valid reason to destroy something that produces food. Rashi, of course, agrees with that. Then comes the second verse. If there is a sufficient, valid reason to cut down trees, only the type of tree, quote, that you know is not one that gives food, that one you may destroy and cut down, unquote. The operative phrase here is, quote, that you know is not one that gives food, unquote. In other words, we have to know for certain. The absence of food of any kind itself proves nothing, because it may not be the right season for that food. Even Ibn Ezra would agree that we need to be absolutely sure that it never produces food at any time during the year. Even if we know for certain that the tree does not produce food of any kind, however, Rashi seems to suggest that destruction is permissible only if there is a sufficient, valid reason to do so. Otherwise, even that tree that never produces food is protected. Trees, after all, are living things, he says. We get to the same conclusion, though, from the way Ibn Ezra interprets these verses. The reason we can't destroy a food-bearing tree, he says, is because it's necessary to preserve human life. Now that we know that trees soak up dangerous carbon emissions from the atmosphere, the very important something else that's necessary to preserve life, even he would agree that all trees must be protected. In other words, you can't wantonly destroy a tree without there being a sufficient valid reason for doing so. That's why our sages saw this commandment as the chapter heading, so to speak, for that whole body of Jewish law I've mentioned in the past, known as Baal Tashkit, do not destroy. As the 14th century Rabbi Aaron Halevi of Barcelona noted, we may not even destroy a grain of mustard for no valid purpose. Simply put, Baal Tashkit, do not destroy is a ban on the pointless and purposeless destruction of anything that's useful to living creatures, be they human, animal, avian, or aquatic, or even plants. The latest UN report is scary stuff indeed. It says we're about out of time from stopping climate change from warming up our world beyond the point of no return. Judaism's basically been telling us that from day one. Literally, day one. There's a midrash I've quoted before. It was written nearly 2,000 years ago, and it involved the first human, Adam. He's being shown around his new home by God. Quote, In the hour when the Holy One created the first human being, 
God took Adam before all the trees of the Garden of Eden and said to Adam, See how fine and excellent my works are. Consider this carefully, so that you do not do anything that would damage and desolate my world. Because if you do damage it, there is no one to set it right after you and fail. There's no one to set it right after you. The earth belongs to God. We're only the stewards of God's creation. Our job is to take care of the earth on behalf of the landlord. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org www.shammai.org and email me, please. And while you're at it, check out my latest Jewish Standard column on the website column page. This week's entry takes off where my last podcast on the pandemic left off. Much alone, stay healthy, including taking all COVID-19 precautions, including wearing N95 masks, and getting fully vaccinated, no matter what any politicians may say, and stay safe.